This is Wessler Media. Hey, we really want to thank you for listening to this episode. But if we could make a quick request, why don't you share it and give us a five-star review? It would really help us spread the word about profiles. All right, now let's jump into this episode. This is a Wessler Media production. This is a 911 call. 911. Yes, this is Mr. Kobchak on Kobchak Road, and we live next to Terry Thompson, and there's a bear and a lion out. And down at Terry Thompson's, a lion's loose. A bear right here running back and forth on a fence right here. Yeah, it's up in... And they're chasing their Terry's horses. If you haven't already done so, see if we have any phone numbers for Terry Thompson, see if we can get him. So far, I'm not able to make contact with him. I tried to get him, but there's no answer. When we started into this, we just had the wolf and everything else was back in, and now it's all snowballed into hell. End of recording. From Wessler Media, this is Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero. Prior to 2011, if you were to say the name Zanesville to someone from outside of Ohio, they'd likely give you a puzzled look. In fact, many Ohioans might struggle to locate it on a map. But for those who know it, they know it well. Many of the city's 25,000 residents have lived there all their lives, and they tell you about how Zanesville used to be Ohio's capital back in 1810 how they were once known for their historic pottery manufacturing or their famous Wye Bridge, which is a three-way bridge built over the Licking and Muskingum Rivers. But in 2011, something happened. Something happened that changed Zanesville's identity forever. And if you happen to be driving through Zanesville on Interstate 70 on October 18, 2011, you would have seen a bizarre electronic sign on the side of the road that read, Caution! Exotic Animals. That's because on that day, Terry Thompson's exotic animals got out. All of them. With the 10th anniversary of this incident, we wanted to learn more about what exactly happened on that day. So when we called Matt Lutz, who's been the Muskingum County Sheriff for more than a decade, he let out a long sigh. It's because he's tired of talking about it. But thankfully, he sat down with us to share his story along with Captain Lecoque, both of who were on duty that day. This story does contain graphic content, and we approach this subject with a great deal of sensitivity and heart. With that in mind, let's begin. Matt, M-A-T-T, and last name is Lutz, L-U-T-Z. I'm in my 13th year as sheriff. Uh, I took over my first term in 2009. Zanesville has a lot more to offer than, than the Thompson incident. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's a great community. We, we have our issues just like everybody else. Um, but um, it's, you know, it's a great community. It's a farming, agricultural uh, county. Um, we're the fifth largest in the state at 680 square miles, but our population is only about 85,000 people. And so um, it's just a close-knit family. A lot of the people we have working here were born and raised here. Jeff Lacoque, and I'm a captain in charge of patrol operations. Started here back in January of 1986, born and raised in Muskingum County. I think we still have a great quality of life here. Uh, you know, it's it's we enjoy a relatively low crime rate. It's a safe community. Um, it's just, it, to me, it's just a good quality of life. Two words that I agree with and many people describe Terry was free spirit. He just lived a little different lifestyle. Um, didn't didn't really play much, but the rules kind of played fast and loose. He was very well known in Zanesville. 
And I described him as a a guy that just liked to push the envelope. That was the easiest thing I could think of to describe. And uh, he had a a Harley dealership that really wasn't the uh, most upstanding type of business there. There was stories of him riding, you know, his wheelies with his Harleys and different things like that. So it was just a guy that, uh, you know, I think that just liked to push the envelope. Um, he was a pilot. Um, there was talk of him flying his airplane and, and flying underneath underpasses and touching down on golf courses and pulling back up. There was complaints from time to time about him uh, flying his plane low over the wide bridge, kind of buzzing, that type of thing. Military veteran. Uh, you know, he'd served his country. Um, I, I think there was, it's like everybody, there's good and bad, I think, you know, good and bad qualities in all of us. In order to understand the complex character of Terry, we turn to a book written by one of his personal farmhands, John Moore. Unfortunately, John passed away in late 2020, unrelated to this story. But we hired an actor to read portions of John's book for this podcast. I'd first met T, my name for Terry, when I needed some unique Harley parts for a project that I was working on. I'd heard that he was the person to see for rare cycle parts that were hard to find elsewhere. So I stopped into T's Harley-Davidson shop in 1992. The shop most likely had anything that anyone could ever want in regards to Harley parts, if you could find it. But Terry had an unusual sense of organized chaos. What looked like a disorganized mess was his own unique filing system. When I explained what I was looking for, he walked right to an area that, to me, looked pretty much like a refuse bin and he magically pulled out the exact part that I needed. Terry and I became fast friends. We shared a love for Harley motorcycles, for music, and for animals. Terry was quite an eccentric and unique person. He liked what he liked, hated what he hated, and had very few filters. Oh, I had dealt with Terry many years. Uh, You know, I hadn't been on the force too long when we heard about him. We have always dealt with Terry off and on through the years. He had been in some trouble with some firearms charges uh, throughout his life. Uh, He had had some federal charges. I personally would have dealt with him on four to six calls, uh, you know, from, from different things. It was typically he would have animals that would be loose, like it was horses back in the day before he got into the exotic animals. For several years, we we knew that he was accumulating these animals, but again, the laws at that time permitted him to do that. He didn't have to be licensed. There wasn't an inspection process. You know, how, how you would come to the conclusion that to accumulate 16 or 17 tigers is a normal thing for somebody to do in Zanesville. I can't imagine what would have been in his mind. I think genuinely he had a, um, a positive thing in mind when he was taking injured and sick animals and trying to nurse them back to health. But then I think he quickly realized that breeding them and having people pet them and and then the dollars and cents started rolling in on what he could get. And I think that uh, that all played a part in where, where his farm actually got to. I, I think he got into it not understanding the financial burdens that there would be just for basic food, medical care, j- just the upkeep and keeping a place like that secure out there. You just can't go to the store and get enough food to feed these types of animals, what you need. And uh, so he was getting, you know, um, stuff from markets and stuff that couldn't be sold. One of the grocery stores in town did give him 
I know chicken that was expiring food, you know, stuff that couldn't be sold, uh, that he was getting some food for the animals that way that was ready to expire. But, you know, really, um, that was kind of the complaint that would bring in the Humane Society and USDA. There would be complaints that the animals weren't getting enough to eat, they weren't being taken care of. We were out there. Uh, I would have been a detective probably, um, I want to say, 06, and actually had some complaints on, on him as far as not feeding the animals properly, not maintaining the animals properly, um, and uh, and stuff like that. And so we did do some investigation on that. Terry would cooperate. He let us, you know, we got on the property. He would stand there and interview with you and talk to you. He would have uh, macaques, which was a species of the monkeys living in his house with him. It was, it was run down. It was dirty. Um, you know, uh, just... Uh, didn't, didn't take care of things like you and I probably would take care of things. I was never around um, when he, you know, gave a, a hard time. I mean, Terry was a, you know, uh, a, a guy that you could talk to. Um, obviously, uh, you know, giving a hard time and not cooperating sometimes can be different. So uh, it wasn't like he was causing us problems. I don't know that he was very forthcoming with the investigations and, and, and cooperating with the investigations, but he never, he never caused us any problems. You know, some people have animals at home and they don't care for them, you know, like maybe I would or you would. Um, but that doesn't mean that they let them get to the point where they're starving or they're not taken care of enough to be taken away from you. Those animals weren't being taken good care of. They might have been being taken legal care of legally, but in my opinion, it's not the way I would ever take care of animals. Uh, you know, those animals weren't fed enough and... Uh, the, the, the living conditions out there were not, and, and again, that's my opinion, appropriate, but it was within the law, the way the laws were at that time. What seemingly started as a side hobby grew into a daily unmanageable task for Terry. By all accounts, his intentions were good, but the overall quality of care was not. He was notorious in Zanesville, but also within the animal community. We spoke with Barb Wolf, and at the time of this story, she was the director of the Wildlife and Conservation Medicine at the Wilds, and someone who has interacted with Terry in the past. My name is Barb Wolf. I uh, am the former um, veterinarian for the Wilds in Muskingum County. Beginning, I'm guessing about a year prior to the incident, maybe a little bit more, I had visited their site with the Muskingum County Sheriff's Department uh, based on some complaints from the public about what they considered to be animal cruelty and animal welfare concerns. I interacted mostly with Marion. Uh, while the conditions for those animals were certainly substandard, Marion and Terry had those animals because they thought they were saving them from a worse existence. And um, she loved them very, very much. The property was on a big hill and they had some um, spectacular horses on the property. And then all of these animals were in primarily um, chain length pens of approximately 15 by 15 with um, pans for food and some sort of um, you know, makeshift enclosures, mostly made of plywood. So they were um, minimally adequate enclosures at best. So concerning enclosures for sure. In 2010, Terry pled guilty in federal court to possessing illegal firearms. A year later, his farm, much like his life, was falling apart. His wife, Marion, had left him and his finances were not good. John, the caretaker, was becoming increasingly concerned about Terry's mental well-being. The conversations between the two men became more dark and deeply reflective. T was always full of questions. It was like a two-year-old at times. 
and since he came home, a new question was added to the repertoire. T asked me, John, do you think there's a heaven or a hell? Taken aback, I thought for a minute. I don't know, T. He got quiet for a minute. John, do you think if there's a hell that what I did in Vietnam will send me there? T, you are asking the wrong person. I have no idea about that kind of stuff, I answered. But I could see he was deep in thought. What do you think it's all about, John? What does it all mean? Do people who kill themselves go to hell? Do people who kill others in a war go to hell? How do we know, John? I mean, he sounded desperate to find an answer. I don't know, T. You tell me what it all means. His reply was serious. I don't know yet, but I will. I'm going to figure it out, John. I am. I'm working on a plan. And when it happens, you'll know. Looking back, I wish I could count now how many times that I heard T allude to that plan. But I didn't know or even fathom in the remotest part of my mind what plan was apparently lurking in T's brain. Did we have conversations and thoughts about, you know, could there be one or two animals get out at a time? Yeah, sure. I think everybody realized that. Um, I think we were all privy to what Terry had there. Um, you know, even when I was involved in the investigations as a detective, I don't think anybody really ever thought that we would be dealing with what we had to deal with. Well, my name is Samuel, S-A-M-U-E-L-D, as Dennis, my middle name, Kopchak, K-O-P-C-H-A-K, and I'm a junior. Where my relation to Terry was a neighbor. The horse right there, the brown, the white, regular brown, is red. But what happened was, Red was standing about right here where we're standing here in the field. And I just was going to go put him in the barn because I don't leave him out at night. And all of a sudden he took off up over the hill as fast as you could go. And I said, well, what's going on with him? So I walked up over there, up over the hill, and I saw all the horses. They, I don't know, they, I estimated 50 or 60 horses they owned at one time, different breeds of horses. And I'm not a horse expert per se, but I've been around horses most of my life because I had horses when I was a kid. And then all these horses would run around the circle up there. So I looked closely and I could see this black figure probably around the middle of those horses. And I couldn't tell what it was at first. And then eventually it darted out and went to the north. And it was a bear. So I started walking down maybe in the middle of the field here. And then um, it felt like something was looking at me. You know, you get that feeling. So I looked toward the fence, and there was an African lion, male, huge animal. I looked up there, and he was just pacing back and forth, the lion. So I got on myself, and my mother, she's passed away a couple years ago. She lived to be 90, almost 92, so she would have been, like, in her 80s. So I said, well, I'm going to call her and tell her because to call 911 because to make sure we get through. I mean, the reception is not very good. <laughs> and actually, when I started to call her, it didn't work right away. So she made the 911 call. Conversation recorded on October 18th, 2011 at 1700. 911. Yes, this is Mr. Kobe on Kobejack Road, and we live next to Terry Thompson, and there's a bear and a lion out. There's a bear and a lion out? Yeah, right. 
up behind us. What's your name? Kopchak. What's your first name, ma'am? Dolores. And it's behind your house? Pardon me? Is it behind your house? Yeah, it's up in, and they're chasing their Terry's horses. I tried to get him, but there's no answer. Okay, I'll send it over. Thank you. Uh-huh. Forty-five and fifty-four. Forty-five and fifty-four. Behind three one zero Cope Check Road. Behind three one zero Cope Check Road. Complaint advised: there is a bear and a lion loose running in the area. And it was shortly after five p.m. Uh, on the 18th when I get the first call from the office uh, saying that they had a call out there at the Thompson Farm. We're getting uh, calls of animals being loose. Had tried to make contact by telephone uh, with Terry and were unable to do so. So I had to drive home, get my cruiser, get ready to head out there. Uh, they had also contacted the sheriff. I had just sat down in front of the TV with the dog, um, and literally the phone rang, and uh, Captain Lecoque, uh said, hey, I think we've got an animal out at Thompson's. And uh, I mean, that's how the call came to me. I think we have an animal out at Thompson's. And I estimated this probably about a 15-minute drive, 10 to, 10 to 15 minutes running, running with lights and siren on. Uh, to get to the farm. And in that 10 to 15 minutes, I, you know, of course, I got my radio on and I'm hearing radio traffic. And uh, you can just hear the radio traffic of what's going on. 1654. Go ahead. Be advised, there is supposed to still be a lion loose. 1945. Go ahead. Just FYI, last time I got up, I was up there, there was at least half a dozen wolves, so one's out. They may all be loose. We're en route for the area. 4560. 45. If you haven't already done so, see if we have any phone numbers for Terry Thompson. See if we can get him, get a hold of him. Hello. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, Terry. This is the sheriff's office. We were trying to get a hold of you. There's a bear and a lion running loose down there by your house. Give us a call. And of course, at that time, we've got guys responding. Some guys have already been there. Well, you, you hear the between the radio traffic of, of units that are responding. You know, you've got that siren traffic in the background. Then you hear from units on the scene. Uh, one of our earliest encounters, one of our deputies, uh, this was very early in the incident, still just had nothing but a 40 caliber pistol, and he uh, encountered a black bear, which was outside the perimeter. I think that was probably the defining moment for me, that it's like, this is no... I mean, we're just getting reports on too many animals. This is not an accident. And the fact that we weren't hearing from Terry or anybody at the home. So, you know, all these calls were just coming in from neighbors. I, I think that was kind of that wake-up moment for me that this is going to be like something that we've never had to deal with. My name's Jonathan Mary. I was a patrol deputy at the time. I had personally never been dispatched out there to handle anything. Terry Thompson's name was more of a kind of just came up in conversation, you know, stories. I heard allegedly he flew a plane under the Hamline Bridge, which is here in Zanesville. You know, stories like that. Allegedly, he would take um, different types of exotic animals, pull through uh, McDonald's drive through uh, out on West Pike near where the property is, and would just go through with a big lion sitting next to him in the, in the vehicle. Obviously, we knew the animals were there. Um, 
And, and when the initial call came in, it was only a couple hours in the shift. Call came in, myself uh, and my patrol sergeant at the time, Steve Blake, um, were dispatched out there. So I get there just shortly after sergeant had pulled up and uh, the cattle fence that's there that the driveway goes up in the middle of. Um, when I get there, there's a bear on either side, uh, uh, a tiger, and also a mountain lion all pacing um, that cattle fence along the road when we got there. That fence couldn't contain them. You know, they were just, they just had, the only reason they hadn't gotten out was because they hadn't wanted to get out yet. I was instructed by Sergeant. He, he told me to go talk to the initial caller. 54. We call you to go to 310 and speak with complainant. Uh, so as I was walking up on her porch, I went to knock on her door, and I, I never even got a chance to knock because I turned and saw a large wolf running down the middle of the road. So I instantly run back to my cruiser and start following the wolf down the road while notifying Sergeant what's happening. 54 to 45, I have a wolf in the roadway. What do you advise? The wolf turned up a gravel driveway, started to run across a hayfield, um, I followed it, still waiting on the the command to put the wolf down. What's the situation with the wolf? It's running into a field right now. What do you advise? This animal had the potential to be dangerous and was heading completely away from the Thompson property. So it was either I put this animal down or who knows what could happen um, if I didn't. We had a pretty severe problem at that time. And uh, so with the description of where those animals were at, I came on the radio and I said, hey, any, any animal that's trying to get off that property or is off that property needs to, be, needs to be stopped, needs to be put down. I got my rifle out of the trunk of my car and put the wolf down. 5460, wolf has been dispatched. After the wolf went down, um, I was notified on the radio that they had uh, an animal cornered back up at the initial property entrance. So I hopped in my car and sped back up to the entrance of the property. When I get there, I see a deputy and a state highway patrolman running. Anytime you see a fellow officer running, you just, you know, it just raises a sense of urgency in you. So I tried to pull my rifle from the passenger seat, um, but it was caught in the computer cords uh, that I had in my cruiser, so I wasn't able to get my rifle. I turn, and here comes a black bear running right at me. I was able to draw my pistol, shoot one shot, and kill the bear. The bear was moving so fast that when he hit the ground after I shot him, he did a somersault over his head. I'm confident that bear wasn't coming to just say hello at the rate he was traveling. After the bear is, is has been put down, I go and retrieve my rifle and make a vow that the rifle's not going to leave my side the rest of the night. I got my rifle from the car and uh, a female African lioness came out from underneath that cattle fence. She ran, there was a house 
close by. She went and ran underneath the porch of the house, and the porch kind of wraps around all the way around the side. I ducked underneath the porch to line up the shot uh, correctly so there wouldn't be anything in the background, you know, backdrop that I could strike. And, and I shot her right in the head. It uh, didn't seem to have much effect on her. She opened her mouth and took off running. And that was kind of the first wake-up point where it was, these animals are fueled a little differently. So she took off running, fortunately, uh, in a direction uh, perpendicular to me, away from me. And then I fired several rounds um, at her and put her down. So I went back to the to the property because again there were still animals uh, pacing the fence. So to go went back to monitor them. A mountain lion then pushed under the fence and began running straight down the roadway. Things are still happening so fast that we haven't been able to shut the road down um, yet. But I was able to have a clear shot. I fired at the mountain lion, but I wasn't able to strike him. But I continued chasing him. And he turned and went up a driveway. Well, as he was turning into the driveway, he passed a full mane African lion walking out to the roadway. So I stopped, pulled up, fired one shot, and that male African lion went down instantly. A couple other deputies that were running with me then passed me and the male African lion and shot the mountain lion in the yard of the house where it had stopped. African lion has been dispatched. Your request. After that, again, all the while, more and more people are coming. More and more deputies are coming to assist. Myself and another deputy were assigned down along Interstate 70 to make sure no animals got onto the interstate. A lot of the the woven wire fence that typically separates Interstate 70's property with private property uh, was mashed down. It was old, rusted, and was just pretty much non-existent. Conversation recorded on October 18th at 17.13. Everything has gotten out. We have a very large black bear running loose along the interstate. All right, they're on the I need an ambulance on standby. We have got deputies and state patrol out chasing Terry Thompson's bears and lions on the interstate. We uh, see a tiger. It was right along that non-existent woven wire fence. So we put the tiger down. There were cruisers, um, lights activated, everything at that point along Interstate 70. Also, uh, ODOT had came out and had put caution signs, the digital caution signs up, advising the situation that was going on as well. EMA brought their signboard out and put caution, you know, loose animals because we, you know, if you're driving through I-70, you know, we want to make sure that people weren't stopping their cars and getting out to gawk at things because, you know, we, we these animals were pretty dangerous. We were close to an interstate exchange interchange where there was a restaurant and a motel, and they had brought up a sign warning people exotic animals were loose, you know, stay in car, that type of thing. Dispatch trial. Hey, exposed. Hey. Do you guys have any idea how many animals that he has? I, I don't have a count. You don't have a count? No. He was talking like he had 48 different animals. Or correct. But that's incorrect. That's incorrect? That's incorrect. Okay, how many? 
he should have like three lions and three bears ballpark right in there somewhere. Three lions and three bears? Ballpark, yes. Unless he just got something that I don't know anything about. Hey, I got uh, Mike Reed on the line here. Okay. He's got information about the animals. He said there's not, according to him, there's not supposed to be 48 animals out there. The way he's talking, there's only like 10 or 12. Okay. But, I mean, we've already put down 10 or 12. Right. Dispatch Conrad. Uh, yeah, I had wanted to call in and uh, give some information that I, on something I've seen on the news about the animals. My parents, they, they go out there and used to feed the animals, and they reported there was 48 animals. There is a larger count than that. The unknown is, is always something that you don't want to have. One of the biggest things we did was Captain LeCoque, uh, when he arrived, um, the caretaker of that farm showed up. One of the first things in my mind was to get him to sit down with Captain LeCoque and to do an inventory list. Because if he doesn't come, then you're kind of shooting in the dark, no pun intended, um, about what you're dealing with. When he arrived on the scene, the sheriff directed me to speak with him and find out an exact count on the animals that we were dealing with. So he just gave me a breakdown of, for instance, like lions, lionesses, tigers, bears, and a basic layout of how the cages you know, were set on the property. The deputy ran up to me in a panic and frantically searched my face for answers, saying, What do we do? Only a few officers are there at that time. It was then that I really began to notice what was slowly unfolding around me. To my left was a dead bear, and I realized it was Yogi. Then I spotted a dead tiger, which looked like Samson. Tiny the bear was near my feet, dead. I look at the hill and I see the carcasses of more lions and tigers. The reality is still not registering with me. I don't know exactly how long it took for me to play out the scenarios in my head. The denial. Between the caretaker and then later his wife, who where he had forgot some animals, sat down and kind of come up with the list. And that's where we came up with the list of 56 animals. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio versus the World an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the World makes history fun again. We brought a communications trailer out down on 40 there to Moose Lodge. Um, and then we had our second command post up at the gate. We had roads blocked off. Um, we got other agencies involved with us, helping us a little bit. We have a OSP aviation unit going to be assisting us. The post has already gotten a hold of ODNR. Yes, Blake. Yes. Somebody tried to get a hold of the Wild Jet. Eventually, Zanesville law enforcement contacted Barb Wolf of the Wilds. I probably remember pretty vividly because uh, that's the kind of phone call that you really never expect to get. Snatch, cancel. Hi, this is Dr. Wolf from the Wild. Yes. Uh, we have, or I'm sure you're familiar with Terry Thompson's animals. Yes. Okay. We have numerous animals running loose. We're not, we can't, obviously can't gain access to the property to find out if they've just opened the cages, let them go. But we've already had to put down a bear and a lion that have charged deputies as well as a wolf. Um, we still have numerous animals running loose. 
towards the interstate. We had a large black bear on the interstate at one point. Oh, man. Um, what we are needing is somebody, or at least one, if possible, two people with tranquilizer guns so we don't have to keep putting these things down. Okay. We have um, three guns. I'm currently at the zoo. Okay. We'll be able to mobilize more guns from the zoo to get out there. Okay. Um, are you familiar with the Moose Lodge on State Route 40? It's like I know a, where Thompson's place is. Okay, well, that's the the road that Thompson's place is on down at the bottom on State Route 40. That's where they they've got the road blocked off there. The state patrol does. So if you if you do get somebody, um, give us a, have them give us a call back or let us know who you can get and how soon it would take for them to get there. Um, at this point, like I said, we don't know what's still running loose. Um, we know that he has a pack of wolves and at least one wolf was out. And everything seems to be able to keep jumping the exterior fence, which to us tells us that the inside cages apparently are open because there's lions that are out that previously were inside cages. Um, hang on. All okay. of Terry Thompson's animals are loose right now. I'm going to get well, All of Terry Thompson's animals are loose. Really? Yes. Um, all we're going to send guns down there. Do you know where Dan is? Yeah, all of them. Somebody let them all out. Thank you. All right. A lot. Um, I am in Columbus. Okay. Um, I'll get there as soon as I can. No problem. I think I was back on the phone with the dispatcher saying, um, you can't get these animals back in. You have to shoot to kill because they're dangerous. Those of us trained in zoos know that with large cats and dangerous animals, if they're out, uh, unless you have a very clear way to recapture, the possibility of having to shoot the animals is very real. The situation in Zanesville continued to evolve, and in 60 seconds, we'll answer the question, where's Terry? But I want to take a brief break and speak with you about what we do here at Westler Media. Ultimately, what we do is preserve legacies, preserve history. And really, this podcast, this entire series is about that, preserving Ohio story. But for this specifically, we are preserving a part of Zanesville's history. But think about your own history, your own story. You have a relative in your life, somebody that you know who has family history or family memories. Maybe it's that one family vacation that everybody loves to talk about or that one memory at that one reunion. Well, there's going to be a day and a time where those memories may no longer exist. But you could do something about that today. We do a thing. We call it Audio Scrapbook. It is like a personal audio keepsake. It is not a grand, intense production. It is a personal audio keepsake for you. It is an affordable process that we would like to do for you to preserve your own legacy. So think about that. WesslerMedia.com. Contact us today through our website, WesslerMedia.com. That's W-E-S-S-L-E-R Media.com. All right, now back to the episode. I believe it was still daylight when they had gone up into the property. Sergeant Blake got into his cruiser and drove up the driveway. And um, of course, there were still animals loose up there at that time. And um, and so then he came back down and, and reported what he had seen uh, to us. Go ahead and page out SRT. Get SRT paged out for me. Break. Special response team. You know, obviously in, in critical situations, they train Together, they have uh, better firepower, they have more equipment, um, and so we got them coming to the scene. Once we were in there, then we used our SRT team, broke them down into teams, uh, made sure they had the lighting, the rifles, the ammunition that was necessary. We have a crew of four 
and a, and a pickup truck. Our people going in to check on the uh, owner of the property. There was a couple trucks that we utilized. Uh, Sergeant Blake drove one truck, and we put four of our SRT people up in the back of it. And then we had a second truck that went up the, the backside of the property. Um, we kind of had a double attack thing there to go up there and try to obviously control uh, the animals that were loose. But then we also wanted to um, basically secure secure the area so we, we could see what was going on with Mr. Thompson. Somebody went up in in an enclosed car, um, drove up, th- you know, through the animals, found Terry. Conversation recorded on October 18th at 1821. 1 to 23. Good. We have located the owner, code 16, possible 58, unknown for sure on that, here in the field. Code 16 would just be dead body. We're probably looking at more of a serious situation than what we had originally thought because they found the owner dead, possibly from suicide. Um, A complete assumption on my part being in here on the third hand is that he's possibly opened the cages and then killed himself. However, under the circumstances with as many as we've had to put down, it's a good assumption. I saw my friend Terry laying on the ground with Solomon the White Tiger lying next to him begging us to help T, or that's what I thought. That is when my brain, which had just been iced over with the surrounding trauma, began to de-ice. I realized that Solomon isn't lying there asking for help. He is acting on his natural instincts. One of the animals is actually eating on Mr. Thompson to a certain extent. He was a smart enough guy, he had to know the path that was going to take. I mean, if he's there and those animals are hungry, you know, the animal's going to eat whatever's there. So, yeah, I mean, I I would think that 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 had to cross his mind. The next thing I know, the farm and the entire surrounding area is like a war zone. People were showing up with weapons. Not just weapons, but high-powered 308s, AR-15s, and other automatic weapons. One truck stopped briefly to speak to Sheriff Lutz as I was standing there with him. One of the officers were bragging about how many pounds of shells they had used and how the truck bed was so full of them they couldn't hardly stand up in it. They were laughing a bit, probably out of nervousness. But Sheriff Lutz nodded toward my direction, and the officer lowered his head and moved the truck on to finish his business. And I began to realize that Everything we had worked for was now over. All of those animals that I had spent time with bottle feeding, playing, caring for when they were sick, feeding each day, and conversing with when I would work around their cage and no one else was around. All gone. I heard T's voice in my head saying, I'm working on a plan, John. I can't believe this was his plan. I won't believe it. It goes against Everything T loved and valued. Why he did it will never be known. We uh, we look at what's probable, you know, what's probably happened, and um, so um, you know he came home from prison. The, the the place was run down really bad. Um, he had no money. Uh, his wife wasn't living on the farm. Um, there was a lot. There was a lot of things there, and uh, 
So I think uh, whether or not he wanted to set the animals free before he did himself what he did, or was he setting the animals free to get back at the community that always caused him problems for having the animals? Um, who knows? People look for a reason why people commit suicide, and the cold hard facts are we just don't know. We don't, we, we don't know what drives, what was the straw that broke the camel's back and pushed him to that point on that day. All we can do is speculate. One of the things was, why would Terry, if he cared for these animals so much, why would he turn them loose knowing what was going to happen to them? He would have known how we were going to deal with all those animals being loose. So here's my take, and this is 100% my opinion and not the views or beliefs of the Muskingum County Sheriff's Office, but uh, Terry and... Marianne viewed these animals as their children. When Terry was in prison, their marriage or relationship, I believe, uh, fell apart. Um, and, you know, Terry had just had enough. And, and again, they viewed them as their children. And so what better way to get back at her uh, than to assure that the children would have to be uh, put down? Hearing the guys talk, they were moving through the cages trying to resecure animals in the cages. However, there were holes cut in the cages. I can't say for sure what tool was used, but the um, the chain link was, yeah, slit um, so that you couldn't really repair it quickly. These animals could still escape, so they had no choice but to put those animals down. He was just one last fu to Marianne. The time went by amazingly quick, I guess. Um, and before you knew it, um, we were probably approaching that 9, 30, 10 o'clock hour. There was a storm front that came in. Um, we had tried to call for some some helicopters with some night vision type things to make sure that we weren't missing any of the animals, but there was too, the weather was going to be too bad for them to fly. So once we got to the point where everything visible uh, was, was taken care of, uh, we kind of regrouped. Uh, I think we worked out there till probably 11 o'clock and um, we we left um, some guards out there for the property. Um, and then uh, we uh, kind of called it a night and resumed the next morning. Things were kind of dying down. Uh, we were still searching, still looking the areas. Of course, if a citizen called in responding to, to any sightings that anybody had on an animal, um, that type of thing. Uh, and at that same time, you know, it was going back and forth between the, what I called the forward command post, which was up there right at the driveway, and then back to where the media had been staged at. Before you knew it, Zanesville rapidly became like the breaking news story. Hey, how you doing, man? It's Jason from Channel 4. Hi there, this is Derek from ABC6. Hey, this is Joseph from T100. How are you today? Good evening. It's Janet McMillan from the Associated Press. Hey there, this is Stephanie Gallman calling from CNN in Atlanta. Uh, yes, this is uh, NBC News, the Today Show. Hi there, this is Gianna from Good Morning America in New York. I just spoke with William. I think it was the next day, but I did a live phone interview with London, England. And that was probably that was probably the, the point where I said, wow, this is kind of bigger than we thought. The, the, the thing that stands out that made me the most nervous, um, I think, out of everything was the first night, 11 o'clock, we get done, I get home, and I just get out of the shower, and the phone rings, my cell phone rings. And it's a lady with Jack Hanna and said that he was coming to Zanesville the next morning, and they didn't know how he was going to react to what we did. And so, of course, you know, you hear about PETA 
and you hear about the animal rights activists and uh and you know so when i went to bed that night i kind of thought you know wow is, is jack Hanna going to come here and cause problems you know and i'm going to have to basically argue with him about what we did and and so i get up the next morning at like you know 4 30 i got like four hours sleep um because i had press interview starting at six and we get back to the trailer and um you know i get there about probably 5 30 or so and i open the door and there's jack Hanna. and uh i walk in and and uh, he says sheriff lutes and i said yeah and he said i'm jack Hanna." he said i just want to congratulate you on on the job that you and your people did he was great i mean he 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 gave us tremendous support uh he never once second guessed uh, the decisions that the sheriff had made uh, and he was just so supportive and so understanding. And it's like, you know, we were getting beat up badly uh, at the very beginning. Uh, our, our 911 center was taking calls from around the world about, you know, <laughs> your animal killers. Yeah, I just saw there's a news on uh, about you guys are killing all these freaking animals. What the heck are you guys doing, man? Why are you killing these wild animals, exotic animals? That's bullshit. Seeing the news broadcast, and I was just wondering why they was killing the animals. The animals, are they going to be tasered at some point, or are they all, all just being shot to kill? They killed all these animals that were loose. I mean, was there any attempt to get them tranquilized? Yes, I'm sitting here watching this on TV, and you're you're killing these animals in vain, Bill, and they, they're out of their habitat. So why do you all have to kill them? Why can't you tranquilize them? Ma'am, they're doing everything they can to not have to shoot these animals. Listen, stop shooting animals! You guys are outrageous! You can use stun guns! What is wrong with you? This is 2011! Stun guns, ma'am, with a tiger? Yes! I suggested highly! Okay. Well, they got to do what they have to do to protect lives, ma'am. You know, he told me some stories that day about uh, back in 1972 when, when him and his uh, a friend tried to tranquilize a, a big cat and the cat killed his friend. Uh, he told me a story about uh, his personal farm where a young a young boy reached into the fence to pet one of the lions and, the, and a big cat ripped his ripped his arm off. And so he had been through it. He he knew the animals that we're dealing with. And his his quote that I always remember was, "Is you know when you're dealing with big cats, you you can train them, but you can never tame them." Here's a guy who makes a living off of of animals and, and people that love animals and, and, you know, and I love animals. But for him to step up and say these officers, these deputies had no choice um, really says a lot about his character. Until Jack stepped forward supporting us, um, I don't think the media knew what to do with it. I, I don't know whether... You know, because again, it's it's an unfortunate. There, it was a it was a lose lose situation we were put in. We kill all these beautiful animals and keep the community safe, or we don't kill the animals, and God forbid somebody gets injured by an animal. You know, you can always be second guessed. You can always be Monday morning quarterbacked. Uh, but that was a situation where I knew the types of animals he had there. I knew how he kept them there. And I knew if they were out of those pens, there was nothing on that property to prevent them from leaving. And uh, the last thing we wanted was those types of animals running around uh, in any of our neighborhoods or, or any part of our county. The big cat that we located alive that was in the wooded area and our SWAT team you know, tried to go down and assist the vet. We, you know, we had vets on scene then. We had more of a controlled environment. We had tranquilizer guns. It's been my job for many, many years to shoot dart guns at animals. And 
there was always um, a barrier between that, me and that animal. And I might not have um, appropriately perceived the danger that I was in. And I kind of uh, went into the brush a little way and shot the gun and the dart hit him. And the person standing next to me, unfortunately said out loud, you hit him. And that alerted the tiger. The cat turned and started charging her and we had to put the cat down. That just verified, you know, what we had done and, and how hard it would have been because we get that question, why do you tranquilize him? And so for that to happen, it was a very dangerous situation, um, but it showed us uh, the decision that we, what we had done was kind of verified that way. We cannot let anybody else get hurt or killed by any of these animals. You know, I, we've got to take care of our people that are here plus the public. You know, the next morning we had interview requests starting, I think at five thirty, six o'clock. Um, and it was really just like a kind of like a, I described it like a rock concert. It was raining that day, pouring down rain, but there was this pop-up tents with all of these different news agencies in it. And, uh, we did live interviews. Uh, I was at one tent. Jack Hanna was at another tent. Piled was about 48 animals to start with. Uh, we have had uh, a few other reports come in from outside areas of seeing animals. Uh, we have checked those reports out and have, haven't been able to locate anything else as of yet. Uh, I am prepared to release that at this point, due to our preliminary investigations, that we feel that uh, Mr. Thompson died from a self-inflicted wound. Uh, I wanted to put uh, our public to ease a little bit that uh, we have recovered the mountain lion, we have recovered the bear. I was concerned if you know I've been saying about the, the lion, the sheriff has just answered about the lion. The major thing as the sheriff wanted to tell you was that the mountain lion has been found. That was a major, major concern. It is still, still not a completely secured area, uh, highly volatile area. Um, we have uh, several of our deputies, ODNR people up there. Um, some of our surrounding agencies that are uh, neighboring to us are, have come in. Um, I am prepared to release right now that, that we feel comfortable saying that we're at about 43 to 44 of these animals that are accountable for. I was just so impressed with Sheriff Lutz and his handling of this situation because he was facing a lot of the public um, outcry and um, and a misunderstanding of the reality of a situation like this. And he was calm and he did the right thing. And he made it um, clearly about public safety uh, while being sensitive to, you know, the, the, the very painful reality that um, these animals were killed. There were, at that point, uh, you know, entry made in once it was daylight to try and start doing an inventory on the animals. Uh, that became the biggest thing in, in day two. At 7 a.m. when it was daylight, I was escorted by two officers up to the farm. My God, what a scene. The steady rain that had started around dusk had turned most of the farm into a mud pit. The smell of ammunition remained in the air, and the smell of death was heavy. The authorities still weren't sure if all the animals had been destroyed, so they began the inventory. There were cats still in their cages, shot to death. The baby cats were gone, shot dead. They only weighed about 50 pounds each and could easily have been led on leashes back to a secure location. 
The officers drugged the ripped and bloody carcasses of the animals with ropes and chains that had been put around their necks through the mud and piled them up on the hillside. As we started to walk out into the acreage of the farm, I saw Jocelyn, a white Siberian tiger, who yesterday was pregnant and who was nesting in her cage ready to deliver. Dead in her cage. Shot in her cage. Defenseless. They told me Mustafa Jr. kept sticking his head out of his cage as if trying to figure out what was going on, and they timed his rhythm and shot him as he peeked out into the chaos. They shot all the babies. They were just dragging them and piling them up. It's pouring rain, and I'm crying. The beauty was now marred by mud, blood, and torn flesh some of which left spinal cords and vital organs exposed. It was overwhelming. We dug a 25-foot hole with a backhoe and buried them. What John says here has been disputed several times by the Muskingum County Sheriff's Office. According to an article by the Zanesville Times Recorder, Sheriff Matt Lutz is quoted as saying, I rely on my deputies in their reports. To my knowledge, no animal was shot that was locked up. There was 48, I believe the number was 48 animals that we put down. There was 56 total on the inventory that we felt comfortable with. Um, there was six that weren't released. Um, and then that we killed 48, so that left two, and that was the two monkeys. And we believe we believe one monkey we found there half-eaten. There was supposed to be another monkey with it that we felt one of the big cats probably, probably ate. I think it is um, surprising and extraordinary that every animal was accounted for because if even if one were still out there, um, you know, that county would be would have been a mess for a long time worrying about it. Those first couple of days went so fast and, and I was just confident in what we did. I'm proud of what our office did and the way our deputies responded out there. The fact that there was no accidental injury, there was no accidental damage to other people's property. I mean, I'm very proud of the job that they all did. Uh, out there uh, when they engaged those animals and the fact that no one else got hurt. That's the big thing for me. Uh, There was just one victim uh, that night. He chose what he chose. He made that choice. I look out at the surroundings, those same surroundings that just a few days earlier I was so proud of and was enjoying with my friend T, who was making a plan. I try to figure it all out. How could those cages be cut or unlocked and opened and Terry still be able to get to the location he was found at? (sighs) The last person that saw him alive was a neighbor. Terry had gone to the neighbor's home to return some saddles. That was around 3 p.m. There wasn't time at least logically in my mind, between three and five, for him to open all of the cages and succeed in a self-inflicted gunshot. And when cleaning up, I found a receipt from Kmart where T had bought new clothes that day. He didn't just buy one set of clothes, but several. Why would he buy new clothes if he intended to die? I just couldn't figure it all out. There's so many questions. 
no answers. And the police reported that it was all settled. A suicide. Unsurprisingly, alternate theories as to why this happened emerged in the days after the Thompson incident. In situations like this, when you can't answer why, it's that lack of finality that produces wild speculation. The conspiracy theory peddled online by Tiger King's Joe Exotic alleges that Zanesville law enforcement shot and killed Terry Thompson and released the animals. But after listening to the evidence that we presented here, you might come to the same conclusion as Captain Jeff Lecoque. Bullshit. Never happened. It is what it is. I mean, Terry's death is a suicide. I knew about Joe Exotic. Um, you know, I call him one of those keyboard warriors when they get on Facebook and, and all these social media platforms and they want to type and tap whatever they want to type and tap, but yet they won't say a thing to your face. Uh, he, he wanted to put a lot of stuff out about me, um, about what we did, and uh, again, had no facts or circumstances or details about what we did. There was no conspiracy. It was a self-inflicted wound. Uh, everybody is very comfortable with that finding. You know, we viewed that uh, and I don't mean it's me personally, but our office investigators viewed that. The autopsy uh, backs that up. Uh, you know, if you look at the bigger picture, if you go into his background of, of, of some of the problems that he was facing, I mean, trying to just financially take care of what he had going on out there, uh, plus any future legal problems that he was going to have to deal with, you can understand how a person would get very overwhelmed uh, by all of that. There's never been even a reason why a deputy would want to do that or an indication of even an inkling of why anybody would even think about doing that. By the end of the massacre, only six of Terry and Marion's animals survived. Three leopards, one bear, and two monkeys. These surviving animals were transported to the Columbus Zoo and shortly after the event were returned to Marion as she fought for custody. Terry's farm, the site of the incident, was auctioned off. It's now a motocross park. In total, 51 lives were lost, 18 tigers, 9 male lions, 8 lionesses, 6 black bears, 3 mountain lions, 2 grizzly bears, 2 wolves, 1 macaque, 1 baboon, and 1 human. Terry Thompson. It's easy to paint Terry as the antagonist of this story. The villain whose actions led to the slaughter of almost 50 animals. A man who single-handedly distilled Zanesville's history down to one notorious event, rebranding the town as that place where the animal escape happened. Because of what he did, Terry's death may not garner much sympathy or compassion from anyone. Many see his actions as unforgivable. But it's important we acknowledge the humanity in this story. Someone lost their life that day. Someone who didn't get the help they needed. Someone who lost a friend. Someone who lost a family member. And as time goes on, history may only remember Terry through the lens of those last decisions he made. But Terry was still a person. He had complexity, nuance, and had an entire lifetime of experiences lived. The history of Ohio is just as complex. We're not unmarked by tragedy, by incidences we wish we could forget or wish never happened. But as they say, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. In the aftermath of the incident, new laws were passed in Ohio making us the model for when it comes to exotic animal ownership. And if the events of October 18, 2011 are part of Ohio's story, then so should be the steps we took to make sure it never happens again. You know, I, I look uh, at this thing uh, after it winds up and goes away um, is the legislation that happened in Ohio that would prevent this from happening again. And Ohio has been one of the leaders uh, in, in numerous states that have no uh, big cat legislation. Sometimes it takes a tragedy to move things forward. 
And uh, this this was definitely that tragedy that moved Ohio into the future with, with big cat legislation and exotic animals. This animal trade needed regulated, should have been regulated years ago, and never was. And the fact that it took this type of event to get some action is, is one of the biggest things that stands out. Could you imagine uh, going out on your deck at night and you got to hear African lions roaring and growling and, and various animals? Because Terry chose to own those animals, other people had to worry and nobody was regulating how those animals were secured, how those animals were taken care of or, or anything. So because of the unfortunate incident, I know now that I feel strongly that more people are safe. It's unfortunate um, that things went, went uh, down the way they did with all the animals, but I believe it was necessary. It's kind of sad when, when you say, when you're out of town and you say you're from Zanesville, people know it's the animal incident. Uh, Zanesville has a lot more to offer than that. So that's the only thing that, that, you know, you take a lot away from your community when that's what people are saying. But on the same token, our community uh, employs that, yeah, we're remembered for that because we dealt with it and we had nobody hurt or killed. And uh, we're very fortunate that we had the men and women uh, wearing the uniform that day that took care of us. Terry thought he was doing the best thing for these animals. In those animals' situation, might not have been the case, but in the long run, I think he has hopefully improved the lives of wild animals in human care. The story's legacy is um, that it took a huge tragedy to get people really motivated to promote legislation that keeps these animals safe and keeps people safe from them. From Wessler Media, this has been Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero, president and executive producer here at Wessler Media and host of this podcast. This podcast has been created by me and my associate producer, Kevin Skubak. We'd first like to thank the Zanesville Sheriff's Office for their help in making this episode possible. They gave us the 911 calls and radio traffic used in this episode. We'd of course like to thank Sheriff Lutz, Captain LeCoque, and Auxiliary Deputy John Mary for their time. Additionally, we would like to thank Sam Kocek, who very kindly agreed to the interview when we showed up on his doorstep suddenly. And of course, Barb Wolf for her wildlife expertise. We especially would like to thank Teresa Headley, who gave us permission to quote the book that she helped caretaker John Moore write. Additional acknowledgement to Kyle Holman, our voice actor. And lastly, we want to thank you, the listener, for taking this journey with us. So please share this episode and give us a five-star review, as that will help others hear these stories in future episodes of Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero. Thank you very much for joining us. On the next episode of Profiles, the incredible backstory of the Save the Crew movement. I'm being told by a reliable source that they're going to move. Unless the deal is made here in Columbus for a new downtown stadium, Precourt's going to move the team to Austin, Texas. I broke down and cried. I'm not going to lie. It's more than just a sports team. It's family. Crew fans said, we're not going to let it happen. I knew from that moment that I was going to do something about it and that it was going to work. To keep a team to stay. Never before has a fan base ever been able to influence that. People in other states sometimes view Ohio as flyover territory. It was just Ohio against the world. Save the crew, save the crew, save the crew. That was it, save the crew. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. 
and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.